You are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing. Specifically today, David Sedaris is writing. As we continue our series on Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls, I am going to be reading A Guy Walks Into a Bar Car. You probably haven't noticed, but I went back and I edited the, the titles for my earlier episodes on David Sedaris. So I decided that in order to continue reading Sedaris on the podcast, which I really enjoy doing, all things considered, it's great for me, it's great for you, it's great for listenership. But I went back and I changed the titles from his book titles to the actual short story, or essay titles, rather. So... Instead of seeing When You're Engulfed in Flames, you'll see the titles of the essays for that episode. That way I can go back and read more from that book if I so choose. And I don't know how much longer I'm going to be doing the Let's Explore Diabetes with Owl series. It's all kind of relative. This is my fifth episode doing the same book, which I've never done before. But again, it's essays, so that lends itself better to the podcast, I feel. Anyway... Today on Twitter, yeah, I'm going to talk about Twitter again, my friend Katie, not to be confused with my other friend Katie that all the guys in the hashtag writing community like to follow and be creepy with, I'll talk about more about that later if you'd like, but Katie B. Sweet, who I've talked about on the podcast before, guys like to be creepy with her, but whatever. This time, it was actually... Another woman in the hashtag writing community being really obnoxious. Uh, Katie posted about having a flat tire, and so every Tom, Dick, and Harriet decided to pipe in with their opinions on calling AAA when she stated that she doesn't have any good cell service where she lives, telling her that she needed to buy canned air and shit like that. People on Twitter are so obnoxious and they think they're being helpful. They're so eager to give advice when nobody asks them for advice. So this actually affects the way that I tweet. A lot of times I will be ready to hit tweet on my tweet. (laughs) And I don't do it because I think of all the different responses I could get. And it never fails to annoy me. And I'll let people know if they're annoying me after a while, for sure. If I don't block them first. So... I know that I brought up my other friend, Katie, and you're probably like, wait, what are you talking about? The writing community is full of saints. Well, notice how on my Twitter bio I currently have excommunicated from the hashtag writing community. Most people don't even look at it. They just see writing community and they follow me. Case in point, when I added that hashtag to my bio again with the excommunicated part, I got 50 follows within a week. So... Yeah. Katie is a friend of mine who is not a writer. Uh, We met because we're both fans of Dan Bell. I read a grim fairy tale on this podcast for her birthday, and we've been friends since 2019. But since people see me communicating with her and they see that she's a woman on the internet, they decide to follow her. And even people that I have blocked will follow her and be creepy, uh, hitting her up in DMs and whatnot. 
There's one person who I have probably mentioned on the podcast before who is not only following her and has unfollowed her and then followed her again because he's a fucking creep. He's still following my wife on Twitter. Mind you, my wife doesn't have a real name on Twitter. And the funny thing is, is that he seems to be aware of my wife and he accused my wife of using my profile to block people, which is untrue. My wife is totally uninterested in what I do on my profile. My wife is the opposite of controlling. For instance, we had a conversation about masturbation not 10 minutes ago, and she doesn't give a shit that I masturbate. She doesn't care that I watch porn. She doesn't care whatever I do. I don't care if she masturbates. A lot of couples are oddly controlling about that. You know, when I had Instagram, she didn't care that I liked pictures of pretty people on Instagram. Some people are controlling and they think that's cheating, which is odd. Anyway, lots of creepy people on Twitter and I am never surprised. I'm never into it. I'm always over it. Always over it. I received my first paperback print of my latest book, Toxic Literature, from Amazon today. And I'm not happy with the way that the cover looks. It looks like it's shifted and it's cut off, which is annoying. Their whole system of designing your cover when you upload an image, when you have a a cover already designed, it's so annoying. You can format things precisely to how they tell you to format it, and they'll still want to copy and paste your text from your manuscript. And today, I not only changed the cover of Toxic Literature, I just reformatted it a little bit. I also uploaded a new manuscript with updated font size, and for some reason, the spacing for the Nero stories were all out of whack, so I had to fix that. And instead of being this huge book, it's back down to... 266 pages, which is also a lot. But you also have to consider the fact that when Demise of the Trinity first came out, it was a doorstopper. I mean, it's a, it's already a fairly long book. It's over 300 pages, but the paperback was cut down significantly when I made formatting uh, changes to it. And I, I still think the text is 12 point. I'm not sure. I'll have to look at it. But I think Price of the Trinity is where I I really got it right. I've had to make the most changes to Demise. If you're unfamiliar with with me as a writer, I am Patrick Attaway, and I have written three novels. I've also written eight poetry books and two short story books. Hooray, hurrah. If you want to support the podcast, if you like what you're hearing, go buy one of my books. That's support enough. So I'm actually, since there's a a new hardback beta uh, option on KDP, I've been mulling around making one of my books a hardcover book. And in an ideal world, I would just make a complete Patrick Attaway poetry book and put it in hardback, but I know that no one would buy it. When I came up with the idea for Glutton for Despair, I made a Twitter poll. Over 70 people voted on the poll. Less than 10 people have bought that book since it came out in 2019. 
none of those people bought it. So the writing community on Twitter, they're a bunch of annoying hypocrites with their little clicks and everything. There's some really cool people who are authors on Twitter. And if you feel offended by me saying that, you're probably one of the people I'm talking about. But most of the people who follow me and that I follow, they're fucking cool. Before I start the essay, I do want to point out that I have been reading Invisible Man in about 75-page chunks each week for this African-American lit course that I'm taking. And it's so tempting to talk about it on the podcast. If you're unfamiliar with Invisible Man, it's not the science fiction or horror novel. It's the novel by Ralph Ellison. I believe it came out in 1952. And it is about an African-American gentleman who does not have a name other than I am for Invisible Man. And it is Ellison's attempt at writing the great American novel. And despite the fact that it has an African-American protagonist, it deals with race issues, it's not intended to be a book about race. It's intended to be a book for everyone. And it's indicative of the American dream and it calls out all the fallacy in our country. And I love it. The first time I read it a couple of years ago, I didn't like it. And I had been looking forward to reading it for years, but had not gotten around to it. And I got assigned it in an American lit course that also happened to be uh, focused on African-American literature. And it, it didn't do it for me. I didn't quite get it. And it's so dense. You have to really pay attention when you read it. And there are times where you find yourself wanting to skim things. And it doesn't help that Ellison was trying to incorporate more poetic sensibility into his prose. So you can diagram his sentences and find the formula and there'll sometimes be a sentence that spans half a page, but it's a grammatically correct sentence. It makes sense, but it could be poetry. You could format it like a poem. And I could cover on the podcast. The issue is that for one thing, despite the fact that it's meant for everybody, I am a white guy and I covered erasure on here. And I love that book. And it's not like people came out of the woodworks to listen to that. However, Invisible Man is a great book, and I've seen YouTube videos, I've listened to podcasts on it, and I think I might be able to take a fair swing at it one day, but not now, maybe next, next, early next year. Got too much shit going on here lately, and I I haven't finished it for the second time, so this experience with it has been much different than the first experience. So the Sedaris essay that we're reading today is a guy walks into a bar car. In the golden age of American travel, the platforms of train stations were knee-deep in what looked like fog. You see it all the time in black and white movies, these low-lying eddies of silver. I always thought it was steam from the engines, but now I wonder if it didn't come from cigarettes. You could smoke everywhere back then, in the dining car, in your sleeping berth. Depending on your preference, it was either absolute heaven or absolute hell. 
I know there was a smoking car on the Amtrak I took from Raleigh to Chicago in 1984, but seven years later it was gone. By then, if you wanted a cigarette, your only option was to head for the bar. It sounds alright in passing, romantic even. The bar on the Lakeshore Limited. But in fact, it was rather depressing. Too bright, too loud, and full of alcoholics who commandeered the seats immediately after boarding and remained there, marinating like cheap kebabs until they reached their destinations. At first, their voices might strike you as jolly, the warm tones of strangers becoming friends. Then the drinkers would get sloppy and repetitive, settling, finally, on that cross-eyed mush that passes for alcoholic sincerity. I've never ridden on a train before. The closest was the train at Disney World, and it was very uncomfortable. The benches were probably older than me and my mother. I grew up around smokers. My first stepmother smoked. She practically chain-smoked. She would smoke with me in the car. She would smoke with me in the house. My second stepmother also smoked. She would smoke with me in the car. She would smoke with me in the house, only she didn't chain smoke. Often the first thing she did when she woke up in the morning was smoke a cigarette, though. My dad does not smoke, so it's perplexing as to why he has been with so many smokers. My mother doesn't smoke. I don't know that she's ever smoked, quite honestly. My grandmother smoked my paternal grandmother. She also smoked in her car, in her house, all the time. It was part of her personality. It was part of her scent. Whenever I came home from either my grandmother's or my father's, and my mother had to open my Chicago Bulls gym bag to get my clothes out, they would all smell like smoke, and she would have to air the bag out. My great-grandparents smoked, they would smoke in their kitchen. I would be under the, the table with their dog Spanky. Even when I was like 10, 11, they smoked. Um, several of my family members have died from smoking. My mother-in-law smokes. I had co-workers at every job I've ever had who smoked. And it's funny because I have grown up in this generation where they tell you that if you start smoking, you will probably die. In the D.A.R.E. program, in the D.A.R.E. program, they say it only takes one cigarette for you to get cancer. I shit you fucking not. On the train I took from New York to Chicago in early January 1991, I wasn't born yet. One of the drunks pulled down his pants and shook his bare bottom at the woman behind the bar. That reminds me. I'm sorry to interrupt. I had my 30th birthday on Monday, so happy birthday to me. I was 34, old enough to know better, yet I laughed along with everyone else. The trip was interminable. Almost 19 hours, not counting any delays, but nothing short of a derailment could have soured my good mood. I was off to see the boyfriend I'd left behind when I moved to New York. We'd known each other for six years, and though we'd broken up more times than either of us could count, there was the hope that this visit might reunite us. Then 
He'd join me for a fresh start in Manhattan, and all our problems would disappear. This is probably a toxic relationship, and they probably fucking other people. It was best for both of us that it didn't work out that way, though of course, I couldn't see it at the time. The trip designed to bring us back together tore us apart for good, and it was a considerably sorrier me that boarded the limited back to New York. I sounded Canadian. My train left Union Station in the early evening. The late January sky was the color of pewter, and the ground beneath it, as flat as rolled-out dough, was glazed with slush. I watched as the city receded in the distance, and then I went into the bar car for a cigarette. Of the dozen or so drunks who staggered on board in Chicago, one in particular stood out. I've always had an eye for ruined-looking men, and that's what attracted me to this guy. I'll call him Johnny Ryan, the sense that he'd been kicked around. Once he hit 30, a hardness would likely settle about his mouth and eyes, but as it was at 29, he was right on the edge a screw-top bottle of wine the day before it turns to vinegar. Oh, that hits close to home since I just turned 30, and I have noticed things this year that have changed in me. My facial hair is growing a lot faster. Usually I only have to shave maybe every five to seven days, and it's not that there's not hair the day after I shave. It's just that it doesn't bother me. But... After about three days, it starts to bother me now. So I shave my neck, and my wife likes to have some scruff on my face to play with. And usually I'll wait until five to seven days. But lately, I've been wanting to shave, sometimes the day after I shave. And I could shave every day. I went through a period in college where I shaved every day. But realistically, it's just... it's. It's unnecessary, especially in today's world where no one really gives a shit if you shave or don't shave or grow a beard or have a beard one day or shave it off the next. It must have been he who started the conversation, as I had never had the nerve. Under different circumstances, I might have stammered hello and run back to my seat, but my breakup convinced me that something major was about to happen. Isn't that always... (laughs) Isn't that always the case when you break up with someone? You either immediately want to jump back into another conversation or you start acting crazy. The chance of a lifetime was coming my way, and in order to accept it, I needed to loosen up, to stop being so rigid. That was what my former boyfriend had called me. He'd thrown in judgmental while he was at it, another of those synonyms for not fun at all. The fact that it stung reaffirmed what I'd always suspected. It was all true. No one was duller, more prudish, and set in his ways than I was. Johnny didn't strike me as gay, but it was hard to tell with alcoholics. Like prisoners with shepherds, many of them didn't care who they had sex with. The idea being that what happens in the dark stays in the dark. It's the next morning. You have to worry about the name-calling, the slamming of doors, the charge that you somehow cast a spell. I must have been desperate to think that such a person would lend me 
to a new life. Not that Johnny was bad company, it's just that the things we had in common were also depressing. Unemployment, for instance. My last job had been as an elf at Macy's. Personal assistant was how I phrased it, hoping he wouldn't ask for whom. Um, Santa? His last job had involved hazardous chemicals. An accident at Thanksgiving had caused boils to rise on his back. A few months before that, a tankard of spilled benzene had burned all the hair off his arms and hands. This only made him more attractive. I imagined more smooth pink mints of his opening the door to the rest of my life. Here is the thing, and I've been wanting to talk about this for so long, and I'm going to say it, and you might be offended, but people who are on the verge of being ugly, who try who put effort into their appearance, whether it's a woman who does her makeup right and dresses right, or a man who does his hair, cleans his face really good. You know what I'm talking about. He doesn't have acne on his face. You can tell he washes his face. Maybe he has a big nose. Maybe he has nasty teeth. Maybe he has big lips. Weird ears. Maybe a receding hairline, but he pulls it off. Those people are the hottest. People who are on the verge of being ugly, who put the effort into their appearance, who look like they may have seen some shit, but they cover it up so well. They're the hottest people. Not the people who are naturally pretty. The people who are naturally pretty are fine. But the people who weren't gifted with that, who look like they might work at Chick-fil-A, They put a little bit of effort into their appearance. Maybe they put a lot of effort into their appearance. And God, it's hot. So, are you just going to stand here smoking all night, he asked. Normally I waited until 9 o'clock to start drinking. But what the heck, I said. I'll have a beer, why not? When a couple of seats opened up, Johnny and I took them. Across the narrow carriage, a black man with a bushy mustache pounded on his formica tabletop. So a nun goes into town, he said, and sees a sign reading, Quickies, $25. Not sure what it means, she walks back to the convent and pulls aside the mother superior. Excuse me, she asks, but what's a quickie? And the old lady goes, $25, just like in town. As the room filled with laughter, Johnny lit a fresh cigarette. Some comedian, he said. I don't know how we got onto the subject of gambling. Perhaps I asked if he had a hobby. I'll bet on sporting events, on horses and greyhounds. Hell, put two fleas on the table and I'll bet over which one can jump the highest. How about you? Gambling to me is what a telephone pole might be to a groundhog. He sees that it's there, but doesn't, for the life of him, understand why. Friends have tried to explain the appeal But still, I don't get it. Why take chances with money? I agree. Johnny had gone to Gamblers Anonymous, but the whining got on his nerves and he quit after the third meeting. Now he was on his way to Atlantic City, where he hoped to clean up at the craps table. All right, called the black man on the other side of the carriage. I got another one. What do you have if you have nuts on a wall? He lit a cigarette and blew out the match. Walnuts. That is not even vaguely funny. Nuts on a wall? 
Uh, is he talking about testicles? Is he talking about peanuts, almonds, lug nuts? A red-nosed woman in a decorative sweatshirt started talking, but the black fellow told her that he wasn't done yet. What do you have if you have nuts on your chest? He waited to be chestnuts. What do you have if you have nuts on your chin? He looked from face to face. A dick in your mouth. Now that's good, Johnny said. I have to remember that. I have to remind you, I told him, trembling a little at the forwardness. I mean, I'm pretty good at holding on to jokes. As the black man settled down, I asked Johnny about his family. It didn't surprise me that his mother and father were divorced. Each of them was 54 years old, and each was currently living with someone much younger. My dad's girlfriend fiance, I guess I should call her, is no older than me, Johnny said. Before losing my job, I had my own place, but now I'm living with them, just you know, until I get back on my feet. I nodded. My mom, meanwhile, is a total mess, he said. Total pothead, total motor mouth, total perfect match for her asshole 30-year-old boyfriend. Nothing in this guy's life sounded normal to me. Take food. He could recall his mother rolling joints on the kitchen counter, but he couldn't remember her cooking a single meal, not even on holidays. For dinner, they'd eat takeout hamburgers or pizza, sometimes a sandwich slapped together over the sink. Johnny didn't cook either. Neither did his father or future stepmother. I asked what was in the refrigerator, and he said, ketchup, beer mixers. What else? He had no problem referring to himself as an alcoholic. It's just a fact, he said. I have blue eyes and a black hair too. Big deal. Here's a clean one, the black man said. A fried egg sandwich walks into a bar and orders a drink. The bartender looks him up and down and then goes, Sorry, we don't serve food here. I'm not reading any more of these bad jokes, but I'll tell you a bad joke. This is my joke. This is the one joke that I know. And I heard my uncle tell it when I was probably in the 8th grade. It's a joke that I tell every woman that I've dated. And it's to test whether or not they can laugh. Okay? So, it's also a way... If someone isn't going to laugh at your jokes, even if they're not funny, do you really want to be around them? So a guy walks into a bar. He's got a brown paper sack, and he sets it on the on the bar, and he, he pulls out a little piano and a little stool. The bartender looks at him kind of funny, and then he pulls out a little man, and the little man starts playing piano, and people start gathering around the bar. And the bartender says, Hey, th- that guy plays really well. Where'd you find him? So the gentleman pulls out a lamp. So the bartender rubs it, and a genie pops out. He says, I will grant you one wish. So the bartender says, I I wish for a million bucks. So he said, your wish is granted. And all of a sudden, all these ducks start flying in the windows and through the door, and they're crowding the place, and the bartender says, I think that genie of yours has a hearing problem. I think he thinks that I wish for a million ducks. And the guy says, do you think I really wished for a six-inch pianist?
Alrighty. I'm not sure why he chose the woman's lounge rather than the men's. Perhaps it was closer, or maybe there was no men's lounge. One way or the other, even now, all these many years later, it shames me to think of it. The idea of holing up in a bathroom, of hogging the whole thing just so that you can hang out with someone who never will, under any circumstances, return your interest makes me cringe. Especially given that this, the dressing room it was called, was Amtrak's one meager attempt to recapture some glamour. It amounted to a small chamber with a window, a space not much bigger than a closet. There was an area to sit while brushing your hair or applying makeup, and a mirror to look into while you did it. A second inner door led to a sink and a toilet, but we kept that shut, installed ourselves on the carpet floor. Johnny had brought our plastic cups from the bar, and after settling in, he poured us each a drink. I felt boneless, as if I'd been filleted, yet still I managed to load the pipe and hold my lighter to the bowl. Looking up through the window, I could see the moon, which struck me and my half-conscious state as flat and unnaturally bright, a sort of glowing Pringle. Do you think we could turn off that overhead light, I said. No problem, chief. It was he who brought up the subject of sex. One moment, I was asking if his mom gave him a discount on his drugs, and the next thing I knew, he was telling me about this woman he'd recently slept with. A fatty, he called her. A bloodsucker. Johnny also told me that the older he got, the harder it was to get it up. I'll be totally into it, and then it's like, what the fuck, you know? Oh, definitely, I said. Okay, so as a man, I'm going to chime in here because uh, the thing about penises is that it's not always a 100% exact science. And see, a gentleman might tell you that he's one size, and then on some occasion it might be a little different. It might be longer, it might be shorter, it might be uh, thinner, it might be fatter. It might deflate in the middle of doing things. He might be daydreaming about something else like paying taxes. And so he loses interest. And it's not necessarily that he loses interest in you, whether you be a, a man or woman. It just might be because his mind drifts off. And we can't help that. We're men. Anyway. He poured more vodka into a plastic cup and swirled it around as if it were a fine cognac that needed to breathe. You get into a lot of fights, he asked. Arguments? No, he said. I mean with your fist. You ever punch people? I relit the pipe and thought of the dust-up my former boyfriend and I had before I left. It was the first time since the fifth grade that I'd hit someone not directly related to me, and it left me feeling like a grade-A moron. This had a lot to do with my punch, which was actually more of a slap. To make it worse, I'd then slipped on the icy sidewalk and fallen into a bank of soft gray snow. There was no need to answer Johnny's fistfight question. The subject had been raised for his benefit rather than mine, an excuse to bemoan the circumference of his biceps. I'm surprised that I was able to read that without 
fucking up circumference. I'm proud of that. Back when he was boxing, I fucked up boxing. Back when he was boxing, the one on the right had measured 17 and a half inches. Now it's less than 14, he told me. I'm shrieking before my very fucking eyes. Well, can't you fatten it back up somehow, I asked. You're young. I mean, just how hard can it be to gain weight? The problem isn't gaining weight. It's gaining it in the right place, Johnny said. Two six-packs a day might swell my stomach, but ain't gonna do shit for my arms. Maybe you could lift the cans for a while before opening them, I offered. That should count for something, shouldn't it? Johnny flattened his voice. You're a regular comedian, aren't you? Keep it up, and maybe you can open for that asshole on the bar. Silent moment. And then he relit the the pipe, took a hit, and passed it my way. Look at us. A couple of first-class fucking losers. I wanted to defend myself to at least point out that we were in second class, but then somebody knocked on the door. Go away, Johnny said. Bathroom's closed until tomorrow. A minute later, there came another knock. This one harder. And before we could respond, a key turned and a security guard entered. It, would've, it wouldn't have worked to deny anything. The room stunk of pot and cigarette smoke. There was the half-empty bottle of vodka. The plastic cups turned on their sides. Put a couple of lampshades on our heads, and the picture would have been complete. You know, I have probably spoken about this on the podcast before, but I've only tried pot once. I hated it. I was leaving my mother's, and one of her neighbors was apparently smoking pot. Not, It was Thursday, so it was the other day. And when I came back from the Mexican restaurant that I'd picked up the food from, I told her that it smelled like a skunk had sprayed all around outside. I suppose the guard could have made some trouble, confiscated our dope, had us arrested on the next stop, but instead he told us to take a hike. No easy feat on a train. Johnny and I parted without saying goodnight. I staggered off to my assigned seat, and he was going, I assumed, to his. I saw him again on the following morning back in the bar car. Whatever spell had been cast the night before was broken and he was just another alcoholic starting his day with a shot and a chaser. As I ordered a coffee, the black man told a joke about a witch with one breast. Give it a rest, the woman in the decorative sweatshirt said. You know, before I skip ahead, I don't know if it's just a thing with guys. Maybe women get this too. I hate saying things that are divisive like this because it makes it seem like I'm about to say something sexist and I'm not, but I can only speak for myself as a man. But I find that when I find someone attractive, a lot of times it's because they're new to me. It's sort of like when you're in high school and a new girl shows up and you think that she's so hot, but then you get to know her a little bit, you see her more often and she's just kind of like anyone else. It's like she loses that new girl scent. I notice that with with new guys sometimes in high school, but usually new guys just got talked about behind their back. But, you know, with TikTok and Instagram and all the social media where attractive people are thrust upon in your face, and 
you initially find them attractive, you might subscribe to them, follow them, whatever. I sound like an old fuck. And then after a while, you get tired of seeing them. You notice something about them that you don't quite like, and you unfollow them or you block them. It's an interesting part of human nature. So it's interesting that people end up getting married really fast or, you know, they get engaged really fast, whatever. And then they break it off because they find things about each other that they don't like. And I wouldn't be surprised if after a while they didn't find each other as attractive. I'm lucky in that I married someone who is exactly my type. Although I worry that I'm not her type. When I was a young man, my hair was dark brown and a lot thicker than it is now. I had one continuous eyebrow instead of two separate ones, and this made me look as though I sometimes rode a donkey. It sounds odd to say, conceited even, but I was cute that August when I was 25. I wouldn't have said it at the time, but reviewing pictures taken by my father in Athens, I think, that was me? Really? Looks wise? I feel that single month constituted my moment, a peak from which the descent has been both swift and merciless. It's only 350 miles from Mode to Brandizzi, Brindisi, but with a constant stopping and starting, the, tr- the train took forever. We left, I believe, at around 8.30 p.m., and for the first few hours, everyone stood. Then we sat with our legs crossed, folding them in a little bit tighter when one person and then another decided to lie down. As my fellow passengers shifted position, I found myself pushed toward the corner, where I brushed up against a fellow named Bashir. Lebanese, he said he was, en route to a small Italian university, where he planned to get a master's in engineering. Bashir's English was excellent, and in a matter of minutes, we formed what passes between wayfarers and a foreign country as a kind of automatic friendship. More than a friendship, actually. A romance. Coloring everything was this train, its steady rumble as we passed through the dark Italian countryside. Bashir was how to describe him. It was as if you'd coaxed the eyes out of Bambi and resettled them half asleep in a human face. Nothing hard or ruined looking there. In fact, it was just the opposite. Angelic, you might call him, pretty. What was it that he talked, that he and I talked about so intently? Perhaps the thrill was that we could talk, that our tongues, each flabby from a lack of exercise, could flap and make sounds in their own familiar way. Three hours into our conversation, he invited me to get off the train in his college town and spend some time, as much as I liked, in the apartment that was waiting for him. It wasn't the offer you'd make to a backpacker, but something closer to a proposal. It's almost as if this gentleman, Bashir, might take him aside and murder him. Be with me was the way I'd interpreted it. At the end of our train car was a little room, no more than a broom closet, really, with a barred window in it. It must have been 4 a.m. when two disheveled Germans stepped out, and we moved in to take their place. As would later happen with Johnny Ryan, Bashir and I sat on the floor, the state of which clearly disgusted him, apart from the fact that we were sober and were pressed so close that our shoulders touched, the biggest difference was that our attraction was mutual. 
The moment came when we should have kissed. You could practically hear the surging strings, but I was too shy to make the first move, and so I guess was he. Still, I could feel this thing between us. Not just lust, but a kind of immediate love. The sort that, like instant oatmeal, could be realized in a matter of minutes and is just as nutritious as the real thing. We'll kiss now, I kept thinking. Okay, now. And it went more torturous by the second. The sun was rising as we reached his destination. The houses and church spires of this strange city. A city I could make my own, silhouetted against the weak morning sky. And so, he asked. I don't remember my excuse, but it all came down to cowardice. For what really did I have to return to? A job pushing a wheelbarrow on Raleigh construction sites. A dumpy one-room next to the IHOMB. Bashir got off with his three big suitcases and became a perennial lump in my throat. One that rises whenever I hear the word Lebanon or see its jittery outline on the evening news. Is that where you went back to, I wonder? Do I ever cross your mind? Are you even still alive? I haven't had moments in person with people like this where we shared some sort of romantic connection. Not strangers where... I don't ride trains, you know. I don't ride buses. I don't... Whatever. But I... You know, there's online chat places where you talk to strangers and sometimes you share very intimate details and you get to be close and it feels like something's going to happen. And then one of you disconnects. There are a couple of lost connections that I remember from those times. One of them was a woman. Her name was Liz, I believe. And she sent me her music. And I spoke to her later on on YouTube because I finally got her to talk to me on YouTube for a brief shining moment. And she told me that she used to do that with a lot of people on Omegle. But we did talk a lot. She told me a lot about herself. She told me that she had an issue where she pulled her hair out, so she had to wear wigs and hats a lot. And she had an alcoholic ex-boyfriend that she had just moved out on, and she was a bartender, and she'd quit college. She didn't have a car, but I was so enchanted by her. And I listened to the song that she sent me for months. I even downloaded it to my computer and she had a SoundCloud and I'm following it now. But yeah, and there was another woman that I spoke to. She was a few years older than me, so that made it perfect, of course. And we talked and talked and then I said, can I please get your email or can we follow each other on social media, anything? I want to talk to you more. And she said, no, I'm sorry, Patrick. This is where it ends. I hope you have a good evening. And she disconnected. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? And then there are times where you do interact with these people offline and maybe have a, a fling or some sort of long-distance romance. I 
met someone from one of those chat sites in person. Maybe more than once. But one time in particular, and it lasted for two weeks. And it was a mistake. You know, the thing is, is that we romanticize each other. And the fact that marriage is work, that people even make it to marriage, it's awe-inspiring. And my wife and I, we had an interesting adventure today. And this sounds like a, a whole lot of bullshit, uh, especially on my part, but she wanted to get an order pickup from Target. And I said, well, you need to come with me because I'm not going to do it alone. And she said that uh, I can't remember how we got to this, this point, but she said she was going to sit in the trunk. And mind you, we don't have a trunk like a Cadillac or something where it's dark. It's one of it's. She has an SUV, so it's not really a trunk. It's that back door that rises, and you have the back area. And from that back area, you could. It's almost like an extra seat in the back. You know what I'm talking about. So she decided to put a blanket and a pillow back there as I drove to Target. And uh, almost there, she, she had me pull over. And I had already told her how unsafe it was, but she insisted on doing it. And who am I to tell my wife no? And it was probably very illegal. And I'm probably a terrible person, but whatever. And so I pulled over, and I, I parked behind a building so she could get out because she wasn't wearing pants. And... She showed me where she made a Snapchat, Snapchat. Sorry, I burped. And she said that I had made her sit in the trunk. And that was, it was so infuriating. I was laughing, but it was also infuriating because it, it was, uh, a tremendous oversight on my part that she might make me look like a giant abusive asshole um, because she was joking and one of her friends sent her a message and he said, what the fuck? As if she were in trouble or something. And she sent him like, LOL. But I was like, you know, people are going to perceive me as being this terrible person. She says, no, every time I tell people about things that happen between you and me, they always feel sorry for you. Jesus. Maybe I shouldn't have told that story on the podcast. Who knows? Anyway, this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Podcast. This is over, okay? (laughs) Happy weekend. Happy reading. Get a life.